0: verses 9 through 11. And as you're finding that in your Bible, I just want to say again just um, how grateful we are to be here this uh, this weekend. It's been a great weekend. Lisa and I have just cherished the time that we've had to have conversations with many of you, uh, whether it's right here or at the Eldridge or just uh, in your home. It's just been a, just such a sweet time for us. It's been great to um, to just see how God has been working in this church and through this church. Every time I talk to George on the phone, he's just always excited about what God is doing here. And it's just so great and thrilling to see that in person. So just really grateful for how God is using you with the gospel in the Lawrence community. And, um, and also, it's just um, been great to hang out with George and, and Katie, and finally to see William. We hadn't seen William until just now. We were kind of wondering if he still existed, uh, but he's a busy guy, so good to see you, William. And uh, so we were just, we've just had a great weekend. Uh, we went to Allen Fieldhouse uh, for the first time ever yesterday, and so um, I, can, I can see you this morning. I just can't hear you. Uh, <laughs> wow. 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 So, the, uh, the text I selected, Philippians, this, this prayer uh, that Paul has for this church that he cherishes, you know, um, I wanted this to be kind of an overflow of the weekend, the marriage conference, because I want us to consider what it means to grow in our love, certainly for our spouses, absolutely for our marriages, but also for each other. To grow in a wise love, a discerning love, a practical love. And so I hope uh, the message this morning would be encouraging to you, but also very, very practical. Very practical. See, uh, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Philippians 1, verse 9. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass weathers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Father, we pray this morning that as we open up your word, that we would be astonished afresh at the heart of of Jesus for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, in February 19 of 1938 in the Pittsburgh Gazette, they ran a story about love. Lisa and I used to live in Pittsburgh. That was our first call in ministry. And so we we didn't read this particular paper. It was a little before us. Uh, But it was a story about a woman by the name of Corinne Ward. She was a struggling actress. And uh, she received a phone call from a local attorney that said a recently deceased client had mentioned her in his will. Could you please come to my office and we'll talk about this? She goes to the office and she said, my deceased client will just call him Dr. Mazaros. And she said, well, uh, he's a physician and uh, she said, I I don't know a Dr. Mazaros. I don't know who he is. And uh, the attorney said, well, that's not surprising. Uh, but he left you a substantial amount of money, and he was quite smitten and taken by you. Backstory is this, that um, uh, she, he, the, the doctor just fell head over heels with a struggling actress, but he struggled with debilitating fears, and so he was always very apprehensive about approaching her and introducing her. Uh, but he was just, she was just... He was just head over heels uh, in love smitten by this woman. And so uh, he left her basically his entire life savings, which was a substantial amount at that time. But you could say, kind of think of it this way, just in terms of what the, the paper was trying to describe in the story of love, that Dr. Mazzaro's love, his was a love that was never fully expressed in word or action. That his was a love that was never fully realized. Now, let's switch gears just a little bit and think about our love for God. C.S. Lewis can help us out there. Uh, C.S. Lewis describes uh, loving God uh, that our, it should lead to an enjoyment, an enjoyment of God, an enjoyment of his love for us, his lavish love for us, that should overflow in our worship, overflow in our praise, overflow in our conversations with each other about God. And he says this, I'm just going to paraphrase, when you enjoy something, whether it's well-written poetry or a walk in an English garden or playing your favorite game, you want to share that experience with someone else, not because it expresses your enjoyment of that experience, but because it completes that enjoyment. You know, think about it, the way we kind of watch things, we, we see very uh, videos that go viral, and it's sort of funny, and we want to, to share that, and isn't it interesting that we don't mind sharing that video, we've seen it a bazillion times, but we'll share it 10 times, or maybe more. George shared a lot of videos with me in Tidewater. Uh, why is that? Because, uh, because it does, that doesn't just express our enjoyment in that thing. It completes our enjoyment in that thing. And so Paul praises prayer for the Philippians uh, that they would be so enamored, so rooted, so grounded in uh, in the love of God that they would want to share this love with others. Not at a safe distance like the doctor, but a love that flows up to God and out to others. A geyser-sized love. I was talking with uh, Mark Brown uh, this morning. We were talking about sprinklers, uh, and it reminded me that back in Virginia, uh, we have in-ground sprinklers, and our our soil is very soft. And so every year, we have to kind of raise some of the heads that get sunken into the ground uh, because of the lawnmower or just, you know, like little pockets in the ground. And so uh, how do you find those sprinklers? We have to turn them on, and you have to go around listening to for the gurgle. This is not the love that we are talking about this morning. We're not talking about a gurgle-sized love. We're talking about a geyser-sized love. So this morning, kind of, we're going to walk through this passage. We're going to spend a lot of time in verse 9 and a quick tour in verse 10 and 11. But first of all, we're going to look at a love abounding through self-giving, a love that is guided by discerning wisdom, And then last, the love-bearing excellent fruit. So let's dive in. Love abounding through self-giving. Verse 9, for it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. We'll put a pause there. You know, our culture's concept of love is that it's a feeling. It's based on feelings and emotions. Romance is sometimes described as falling in love. Uh, It's a relationship based on mutual attraction, feelings, emotions, this give and take. You know, we can also experience this kind of love for each other, for one another, uh, for the other folks in your life, not in terms of a romantic love, but just maybe loving your friends, whoever, based on this give and take, according to the culture. And it's this, I love you if, or I love you because kind of love, But if something compromises the I love you, if or I love you because, then I don't love you at all. I'll just cancel my love for you. And so, for sure, because we're creating God's image, love does get in the mix of our emotions, right? Our emotions are part of how we are created in the image of God. God's given us Our emotions to help us connect well with others. I experienced this many times in my life. One that uh, that really comes to mind is when my my sister died. She was 37 years old. She left behind three young children. It was devastating. And I will tell you, I still remember that uh, a crying hug from a friend was worth more than a thousand words right? Emotions help us connect well with each other, but also we know that emotions help to reveal our connection with God, right? We just sang praises and worship to our God, so uh, uh, it reveals our connection with God, whether we're singing songs uh, with uh, hundreds of voices or where we're crying in anguish out to God like the psalmist. So, here's the thing. Feelings come and go with the weather. They change. We're fallen human beings. And so we can't live healthy, productive lives to the glory of God based solely on our feelings, can we? That if we experience deep and lasting relationships that seek first the kingdom of God and glorify God, they must be understood in terms of self-giving. And self-giving, isn't that the way God has loved you. Isn't that the way God loves us? God didn't demonstrate His love for us because we were warm, lovable people, and we were just so irresistible, right? No. God demonstrated His love in that while we were yet sinners, He sent Jesus Christ to shed His blood on the cross. We're going to come to this table in just a few minutes. Those elements signify. They represent something. They represent uh, Jesus' death on the cross, his love poured out on you. So love abounds through selfless giving. During uh, the pandemic, during COVID, I was reading a lot of biography just to stay encouraged. And I read a, a marvelous biography on George Whitfield by uh, uh, Arnold Dahlimer. And it's a really interesting story. Many of you know the story of the Wesley brothers, uh, John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, Great. British 18th-century evangelists, uh, where God was using them for all the revival movements, not only in Great Britain but here in the United States. and tens of thousands were being converted during their ministries. They all three established what were called uh, societies there, religious societies that became the seed form for the Methodist Church. And Whitfield, they were very close, the three of them, the two brothers, and George Whitfield. Of course, Whitfield, if you know, a little history. George Whitfield was uh, was more inclined toward the Reformed faith, like uh, uh, like PCA, right? Um, and so we know that John Wesley uh, was more inclined, more toward uh, kind of Arminian in his theology. But over time, John Wesley began to despise his friend George Whitfield for his uh, Reformed convictions. And so um, he actually ended up barring Whitfield from preaching in uh, the Wesleyan societies, so you can no longer preach here any longer. And then when George Whitfield came uh, to America during the Great Awakening over here, uh, John began to publish uh, his sermons publicly and openly denouncing his friend's theology. The relationship became very, very broken. But the lay, uh, but, uh, but, in a few years, they would become the best of friends. What happened? Was there some kind of theological peace summit? Was, did peacemakers come to town? Well, none of that. This is what happened. Charles, John's brother, married a woman by the name of Sarah. And that kind of awakened to John in the busyness of his ministry uh, that he was lonely that he had thoughts of, hey, maybe I would like to be married too. And he thought of this woman named Grace. Grace was a nurse that attended John when John was gravely ill. The problem was that Grace had become engaged to a man by the name of John Bennett. John Bennett was a young pastor on the employment of, you guessed it, John Wesley. But Grace began to become awakened to her love for John Wesley and that didn't sit well with Charles. Because Charles considered Grace, Grace was not dignified to bear the Wesley name. So Charles did this. Without talking to his brother, he saddled a horse, rode to Grace's hometown, got Grace, took her to John Bennett's hometown, performed the wedding ceremony, and that was the end of his problem. And that absolutely devastated John Wesley. It sunk him into the deepest depression. He was inconsolable. Ministry shut down. George Whitfield sought him out. Didn't say a word. Just sat with John and wept. He had no greater friend than George Whitfield. George Whitfield was saying in that nonverbal communication, John, you can't cancel my love because you can't cancel God's love in me. A welcoming, unquitting love that flows through me to you. We see that love is a self-giving love. But secondly, we also see that that love is guided by discerning wisdom. Again, verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So the love that Paul is praying for, for the Philippians, is a love that abounds But there's a contrast here with our cultural conceptions of love. Again, uh, our our culture would say, um, you know, our uh, love is is about getting, not giving. That love is about feeling or self-expression, not sacrificial uh, giving of myself. This is about blind loyalties rather than wisdom. So in other words, you know, a friend might have this uh, love for his friend, right? But it might be a misguided love because uh, he just never lovingly seeks his friend out to confront him lovingly about something for his own good and edification. Or maybe even entire churches or denominations where uh, they're abandoning the truth of Scripture about teaching things about scriptural principles and God's design for sexuality or marriage, because our culture is saying, "Well, that's not loving to do." Or maybe the flip side of that is churches that are so tenaciously clinging to the truth that love just goes out the window. You know, um, the Bible talks about this in Revelation 2. Jesus praises the church in Ephesus for their doctrinal vigilance, but has something to say to them, a rebuke about their loss of love. On the flip side of that is the church in Theratera where um, he commends them for their great love but rebukes them for compromising the truth. So where do we find the balance? Uh, One one author said this where we find this this biblical balance. He said this "True uh, true love seeks truth it hears it humbly and it speaks it lovingly. And so while Paul here is praying for them as we move on to the second point is that Paul prays for the Philippians uh, that they would not only act on behalf of other people, it's not just a love in theory or love from afar, but it's an act that loves and can discern the well-being of another. I've been learning that Kind of slow, slowly and painfully over the years, you know, to, to look and love through the lens of the gospel. Uh, one of my professors at Westminster Seminary, Mike Emlett, uh, he's in the counseling department. He's actually a, um, a physician, Ivy, Ivy League trained physician, uh, but he uses uh, these terms, very biblical. Uh, we are all sinners, saints, and sufferers. I'm sure that George Boomer has uh, used those terms with you. Uh, but, you know, we are all sinners, all of us. That God redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb, that He has set us apart for his own, to be His own. We are His beloved children. But We're also sinners, aren't we? You know, we've been redeemed uh, from um, the penalty of sin, but the remnants of sin, the influence of sin still remains. It, reflu- it influences the way we think, the way we act, the way we speak. So we're still sinners, um, but we're also sufferers, saints, sinners, and sufferers, that we're sinned against, that our bodies and our minds are infected and broken by the fall, by the curse, that we all long for the day when Jesus will come back and make all things new and and renew us, body, mind, and spirit. We have to kind of keep those things in balance, right? Because as sufferers, we can be tempted to sin in ways we never would have imagined. And sometimes our sin can compound our suffering tenfold, can it not? You know, think about this, if you think of just kind of, a, kind of an anecdotal hypothetical exercise. Suppose you, you know somebody and they're just kind of like dripping with anger. They're just kind of radiating anger from their life and their, their circle of relationships just seems to be shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And sometimes you might be tempted to say, well, you know, they're, they're just a sufferer. That's all, you know, this, they've been hurt. They've been wounded. Uh, they, the, you know, where, where did this anger come from? Some kind of wound uh, in their life. And certainly we know from Scripture the suffering can stir our anger and magnify some anger. We think of, think of Job, who is suffering, and, and his friends, his very unwise and unsensitive counselors were aggravating his suffering, and, and Job became angry. But our anger can also be a product of our idolatrous demands toward God. Think of Cain, right? When Cain became Bossy and thought that God should accept his sacrifice, or think of Jonah, who is eaten up with his prideful nationalism. You see how we're all saints, but we're also sinners and sufferings. And that, those things interact with one another. And every single one of us needs the gospel to make beautiful what sin has marred and disfigured. And every single one of us needs to be—we are, excuse me—we are seeped in self-deception and God forgetfulness. We need to grow, in becoming wise and discerning in how we love. At the marriage retreat, I, I referenced John Ortberg. He is a former pastor, a gifted author, and he tells a story about a little, little. Dust up, they had a little argument with one of their children. Uh, He said he called it a a classic family moment. And one of the kids had done something wrong, and the circumstantial evidence against this child was overwhelming. And so, as they were driving somewhere, uh, he was going to um, do the cross examination and classic Perry Mason bring down uh, the conviction with his child. And then, this child had this brilliant, genius change of strategy. That through John, for a moment, this radical change of tactic. She said this. She got this extremely hurt look on her face, and she said, Daddy, you don't think that I would ever lie, do you? And John Orberg said, uh, he said, I was just about to reflexively say, well, no, honey, of course not. I would never think something like that to hurt you. But then suddenly I thought, what am I saying? The heart is deceitful above all things. So I actually told this child, do I think you would lie to me? You're darn right I do. Who would not lie? I tell lies. Your mom lies, that's for sure. Everyone I know lies. I know in your best self you want to speak the truth, but for sure I think you're capable of lying. We all are and we all do. And then this is what he says to us trying to grow spiritually without hearing the truth about yourself from someone else is like trying to do surg- a brain surgery on yourself without a mirror. But we need to love discerningly. And that starts with honesty with self and it seeks always seeks the well-being of others we see this love, this love that abounds as a self-giving love. It is a discerning love, but last but not least, love that bears fruit. We're just going to take a tour, verse three, a quick tour through 10 and 11. So that, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's unpack that. See, this fruit that is nurtured in the soil of God's love will continue to grow in its capacity to know what is excellent. Marcus Bachman describes this love as the spirit-enabled ability to discern what is superlative, that which radiates Jesus. Isn't that good? A spirit-enabled ability to discern what is superlative radiating and seen in the life of Jesus. And that's helpful because life is just full of overwhelming choices. We don't have trouble distinguishing the big, issue, uh, big issues in life. Uh, murder, that is wrong. Uh, we see this, uh, this unmerited kindness uh, that is maybe unsuspecting, that snuck up on somebody, and it goes viral. We can recognize that. There are a lot of gray areas. We're just not so sure. We have to skip down to the comments section and read some of the comments because, well, I'm not sure what to think about this article. But as we're growing and experiencing God's love, as we're being informed by His Word, as we're being guided by His Spirit, we begin to choose what is best, the best priorities the best best habits, the best pursuits, those things that radiate Jesus. And that makes us wiser because we become more discerning in how to love others. Also, we grow in in holiness and blameless, pure and and blameless. Pure means holy. Blameless literally means uh, not stumbling he who does not stumble. He's not talking about being sinless. He's just talking about not putting impediments and weights and tripping things and hazards that would encumber us in our growth and grace that we don't put that in our own path but surely not in the paths of others because we're growing in love for people. And as we began to do this, we see that even trials and tests and even our sufferings for God's means to plant us deeper and deeper into the soil of God's love. Don't believe me, Romans 5. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope will not put you to shame. Why? Why does hope not put you to shame? Because God's love is being poured into your hearts By the Holy Spirit who has been giving to you grace, grace. And that yields, verse 11, a beautiful bumper crop of righteousness as you're growing in endurance and character and hope. You see, God uses trials and and tribulations and sufferings to purify us make us holy, to edit the stories, the storylines and chapters that we insist to write for ourselves in our own lives, but contains very little pain, very little risk, very little beautiful risk for Jesus. we will take that chapter out, and very little suffering. We just don't write that chapter for ourselves. But that sadly yields, I'm sorry, that story sadly yields very little love. But God uses your trials, your sufferings, even the worst of your sufferings, to write a better story. I'm going to end with this. In June of 1938, J.R.R. R. Tolkien wrote a letter to his editor, Stanley Unwin, explaining why his scheduled publication for The Hobbit would be delayed. It would be delayed because he told his editor that instead of drafting more uh, material and finishing out the chapters, he was going to go back and completely rewrite chapters one through three. And he did that rewrite because he'd received some excellent criticism from some of his friends, one of them being C.S. Lewis. One of my favorite parts of my sabbatical years ago was just sitting in the same Places and pubs where C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. R. Tolkien had those conversations. And as Lewis read the chapters, he loved the story. He loved Tolkien. They, they loved his friends. He encouraged Tolkien, but he had to offer some friendly criticism, and it was tough. He said, J.R., J. there's just too much dialogue, there's too much chatter, there's too much silly hobbit talk. And Tolkien said, he was very hurt and offended. He said, I am rather fond of Hobbit talk. <laughs> he said, it's just dragging down the action. He was wounds from a friend, but he went back and he, he cut page after page and hurt him to cut and edit. The result of the painful struggle was a much better story. Brothers and sisters, God is using all your trials, your difficulties, your difficult relationships, your difficult marriage, your difficult parenting to purify you, to plant you deeper and deeper into his love. That it might yield a bumper crop of righteousness to his praise and his glory. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we pray that you would just uh, fill us with the joy of knowing that you are with us, that you are for us, that you know us, that nothing can separate us from your love. We pray that our love for others would abound. It would be spring-loaded from knowing that you love us as much as you love our Savior, your Son, Jesus. May he be exalted. Amen.